Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Radical Candor podcast. I'm Kim Scott, author of Radical Candor and co-founder of Radical Candor, the company. That's a lot of radical. (laughs) And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. And I'm Amy Sandler, your host for the Radical Candor podcast. And today we're answering your questions. So let's jump in. The question reads, I'm a youngish 32 director who's been assigned two people older than me in their mid-50s who are my direct reports. I respect and appreciate their tenure and experience and want to express that without sounding patronizing. I also want to make sure there's no bad blood in terms of age that I'm much younger. So, Kim, what's the first thing you want to do in this type of scenario? First of all, I want to say that I I feel the pain of this listener. Uh, it's really it's really hard and really tricky. In fact, in my career, I went from always being very much the youngest to all of a sudden one day being the very oldest. It was very disorienting. So, having some some empathy for both sides of that equation, uh, I think, can help. One of the most uh, intense experiences I had with this was when I I started a software company called Juice and was out looking for a co-founder. I needed a technical co-founder. So the CTO of the company was also my co-founder, and he was in his 50s and I was in my 30s. Maybe he wasn't that much older, but it seemed like it at the time. Actually, come to think of it, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to exaggerate, Alan Warren. You're out, if you're out there listening, but he had a lot more experience than I did, and I was intimidated, uh, more than a little intimidated. And I was also sort of, uh, I, I didn't know how to handle it. So I, I did for Alan what someone had done for me once, which was that I went to Alan and I said. You know, in in another situation, I can imagine that I'd be reporting to you and I'd be honored and happy to report to you. And I'm looking forward to working with you and to learning a lot from you. And I just sort of started like that. And I think he appreciated it. We had a really good working relationship. That was years ago, but we just talked on the phone yesterday. So we're still friends to this day. I don't know. Jason, what do you think? One of the things that you did really well in that situation was you just pointed at the elephant in the room. You said, look, yeah. there's an elephant over there. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's actually quite helpful because demonstrating that kind of self-awareness that there may be some strangeness here, but it's actually your intention to make this as effective a, a relationship as possible is really, really helpful um, in the situation where there's an age difference, but also where there's an experience difference. You know, when I was at Khan Academy, I was responsible for managing uh, the engineering organization, the product management organization, the design organization, and the customer service organization. I had experience in three of those, product management, design, customer service. And I had no training, no formal training as an engineer. And so everybody in that organization, even the most junior person, had more experience than me. And just saying, I'm not an engineer, my goal here is to make, to help you build the best engineering organization possible. How am I going to do that? But starting from the place of like, I have a lot to learn here and I'm open to it, I think really helped. Yeah. I think what something you said that I just want to, I want to stress is I have a lot to learn here is one of the best things that, that you can say to people, because I think in my experience, any, anyway, one of the most frustrating things about getting a new boss is that you have to educate your new boss. And your new boss is often resistant to being educated. <laughs> because I think a lot of people, when they become the boss, sort of feel like 
They're supposed to be invulnerable. They're supposed to be omniscient. And of course, those are not job requirements, but a lot of bosses kind of feel like they are. And so if you can sort of be willing to, and eager even, to learn, and, and even eager to be proven wrong, uh, I think that goes a long way. Because what people often want is to have their experience and their knowledge used. They don't want to be underutilized. They don't want to be underappreciated. And so if you demonstrate that you're going to listen and learn, I think that goes a really long way. Just to amplify that a little bit, Kim, and push back a little, one of the things that I find in workshops is people that are a little resistant to laying down the power if there's already some sort of hierarchical difference. So in this one, because of age and expected experience, or to Jason's point, there's a lack of knowledge in a certain area. So how do you navigate between being sort of vulnerable, curious, I have a lot to learn, while still having the respect of your direct reports? Like, why are they going to trust you 20 years their junior to know what you're doing? I think one of the things you can do is to say, I I don't really know what I'm doing and I need your help (laughs) to figure it out. Uh, Because you probably don't know exactly the right answer in every solution. I'll I'll give you another situation that's not, it, it wasn't about age, but when I was at Google, my last boss at Google was Francoise Brower, who just published a very brave blog post, which we'll put in the notes. She came to me and she said, look, this is a big job and I really need a friend. And so she just laid it all down and she said, that's what I want from you. That really moved me uh, actually and did become great friends and we're still good friends to this day. And I was in this, I had actually already decided to leave Google at that point, but I wanted to make sure that I was leaving my team in good hands and she wanted to make sure that she was that that we were going to have a smooth transition. So I actually just leveled with her. We were very open and honest with one another. And we worked really well together for a few months. So I think that it's easy to say, like, you know, lay your power down. What the hell does that mean? So there's there are different ways to do it. One of my goals when I was talking to Alan Warren, the CTO at Juice, was to say, look, if the situation were different, I would work for you and I would happily work for you. Uh, So just to sort of put it on the table, I think what what Francoise did for me is she said, I really need a friend. Like, forget about all this power stuff. Like, let's get on the same page and work together. And that was very effective, I thought, uh, and very candid. It's such a great story. Jason, I'm curious, would those exact words resonate with you in the same way of, you know, I really need a friend or would there be something a little different that would work better for you? I do think there's an underlying theme to all of this, which is part of laying down your power is exposing your humanity, right? Like there's this thing that connects us, which is, you know, our shared vulnerability as human beings. And when we forget that, like that's when it's possible for sort of like politics and especially power related politics to, to sort of take over, to, to, to work against the better angels of our nature. And I think when we're reminded of that connection, especially when it's done in a real and authentic way, I think it it can be fundamental to building a relationship across differences, right? Because you're reminding the other person of what's the same about you. (laughs) 
And, and I see that as like as absolutely essential to building relationships, especially when there's a power differential. I, I think, like honestly, my gut reaction listening to the story is that you know, not knowing this person and hearing it for the first time, I'd be worried that I was being manipulated. I knew her like, well enough to know she meant it. When we talk about laying power down as as a manager, what do we mean? I think that one of the things that was good about Google, and I think probably wasn't as good about Juice, about the company that I started, was that at Google, the power had already been laid down. There were, there were a lot of systems put in place that stripped managers of their usual sources of power. For example, a manager couldn't unilaterally decide who to hire, couldn't unilaterally decide who to fire, couldn't unilaterally decide who to promote. And so I think that's another kind of specific tactic that I would offer if you're leading people, whether they're older or younger than you are, is to say, you know, I want you to participate in these decisions. I'm not going to make these decisions myself. One of the things that we talk about in Radical Candor is you want to push decisions into the facts. Very specific piece of advice that I would give someone uh, in this role is to make it really clear how decisions are going to get made and to make it really transparent how decisions are going to get made. So one of the uh, suggestions that I make in Radical Candor is to have a big decisions meeting. So that means every week you as the boss, you get to decide what are the most important decisions that are going to get made and who's going to make them and by when are they going to get made. But you don't grab decision-making power for yourself. You want to lay that down and let the people who are the experts make the decisions. If you do that, then people feel more reassured that their expertise is going to be utilized because there's nothing more frustrating than watching someone who doesn't know, frankly, shit from Shinola grabbing decision-making power because they're the one in charge. Like That's what people fear from their boss. The other thing that I noticed as we were talking about this is there's another elephant in the room and we've gotten at it in a couple of ways, which is that the manager's job is to know what to do. That's not a manager's job. A manager's job is not to know what to do. A manager's job is to ensure the best decision is made. Yes, yeah. <laughs> given all the information. Process. Yeah. Right. And I think that like some of the fear that we have a- around differences in expertise come from this feeling that ultimately the decision it's my responsibility to make make the decision. But to Kim's point, it's actually not your responsibility to make the decision. It's your responsibility to make sure it gets made. Yeah. I think another thing I really like, I really like that, Jason, you're not grabbing at the power. I think another thing that is really important is to remember that being a boss is a job. It's not like an assessment of your value as a human being. And I think it's also important to remember that a lot of people would rather do just about anything than be a manager. (laughs) A lot of people really, they want to do their work. But in fact, Right now, I guess it's kind of ironic given what I write about, but you're doing all the management and I'm mostly sitting alone in this glass box writing. Uh, I'm doing very, very individual contributor work, which is what I want to do. So I think very often changing your mentality about your job as manager, you're not the manager because you're more powerful. You're not the manager because you know more than other people. You're the manager because there's a job to do, which is to make sure decisions get the best decisions get made and not to grab decision-making power. 
uh, and you're the manager often because nobody else wants that job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Can, and, can you talk about this idea of not everyone wants to be a manager, just how that fits into your rock star superstar framework? Yeah, it's a, it's a really important point. So remember that management does not make you a superstar. Like there are often managers who are on a, a relatively slow growth trajectory. They have this job as manager. And then these people come through their teams who have some sort of skill. Uh, maybe they're an engineer, maybe they're a great salesperson, maybe they're a great writer, a great editor, but they don't want to manage. In fact, there was someone at, at Apple, and I was trying to get him to sort of encourage people to take this class managing at Apple that we were teaching. And he said, well, my, my agreement with Apple is this. I will do great work for you and you will never ask me to manage other people. <laughs> like the last thing in the world. This, so I realized like this is not the best spokesperson for the class managing at Apple because he hated management. There are a lot of people who are very talented, who are on a superstar growth trajectory, uh, who are going to do incredible work. They're going to keep growing, but they, they're not going to grow best by being managers. They're going to grow by developing this skill that they have. And so management, like I'm not discounting management. It is a skill that you can build over time, but you can be on a, you can be either on a rock star or a superstar path uh, as a manager. And I think one of the things that managers do, one of the mistakes that managers make sometimes is they clip the wings of the people who are in superstar mode on their teams. And in fact, shortly after I joined Google, Larry Page told a really good story about this. He was an intern at a consulting company. And his boss, who who was his manager, who was sort of slow and steady, wins the race kind of guy, who thought he knew he, he wanted to make all the decisions... And he presented Larry with this project and he told Larry what to do. And the manager's approach was going to take Larry all summer. And Larry, being Larry, had an idea where he could get it done in 20 minutes or something. And so he did it his way. Larry did it his way. And his boss said, oh, no, 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 no. You have to do it this other slower way and take all summer getting to the same result. And I remember... Larry looking like with such pain and you could tell how frustrating this experience. And he said, I never want anyone at Google to have that experience ever. So I think the more that you can do to reassure people that your job as their manager is to help them grow in the way they want to grow as fast as they want to grow or, or as slow. People don't have to grow all the time, but they do have to do great work. One, one observation that I had is this idea that management is a job and it doesn't distinguish you, it doesn't give you some, it doesn't anoint you with some magical set of powers just because you become responsible for management. One interesting thing about this particular scenario is I think that belief is young in terms of like history. You know, a group of people in their mid-50s or 60s might not hold that belief very closely. And so you, you're probably working from a deficit, meaning like you may have that attitude and that belief, and that might actually be a really great way to build that relationship with someone who is older than you, but they may not believe it. Like you could say all of these things and they may still not believe you. And so the, I really think this idea 
of turning that belief that you have a lot to learn, that you're humble, you're open, you're willing to listen to what they have to say into concrete action, like changing the way decisions are made on your team is going to be absolutely essential in order to like build the trust that's necessary to get people to operate in that world. You know, people's perception of management, of leadership in general is is like formed through mostly through fiction. Um, And so you're up against it, right? Like as a leader trying to prove that you actually hold these beliefs. And not only is it formed by fiction, but people often come with baggage of having managed who acted exactly like they were anointed by God when they received that title and started behaving like garden variety jerks. Yeah, especially people with lots of management experience. So you've got two things going against you. One is like, Dilbert in that cartoon. And the other is, I I often say that being a manager can feel sometimes like being the projection screen for everyone's unresolved issues with authority. When Jason was talking, I was thinking about a conversation I had with a sales team. And one guy said, you know, I grew up in like the Bobby Knight era of leadership, like throwing chairs and yelling that's what a leader looks like. So it's not just that you have the sort of age difference. You actually have a generational understanding of, we talk about, you know, moving from command and control to collaboration. So how do you, if you're in a collaboration mindset, how do you work with someone who was steeped for decades in a command and control chair throwing environment? In the same way that culturally we're steeped in sexism and racism, we're steeped in those images of leadership still to this day. Like if you look at fictional representations of leadership, they often involve the chair throwing, like, you know, going out and making a crazy decision with nobody else's input. Like that is still the cultural depiction of, of leadership. Like we're living an example of it right now. Yes, we are. I, I will quote something from Radical Candor that I think got cut from Radical Candor, but it was one, I, I'm still pissed off that I cut it because it was one of my favorite lines. But I think for most of human history, we achieved our big collaborative task through terrible brutality, through slavery, through like through truly horrible leadership. And along came the Industrial Revolution, and that kind of brutality got replaced by bureaucracy, which frankly was a giant step in the right direction. I'll take bureaucracy over brutality any day, but bureaucracy is something that most of us find really doesn't bring out the best in us. We don't do our our best work in bureaucratic situations. And I think one of the most optimistic things that I've seen in my career in Silicon Valley is the extent to which there's a recognition that we need to get rid of bureaucracy and replace it. The atomic building block of management is a human relationship, not command and control. And that when we rely on relationships, human, and they're not friendships, they're not, they're not like any other human relationships, the ones we, the relationships we have at work. But when we rely on those relationships, we do the best work of our lives. And, and so that's why it's so important for a manager to lay their authority down, to lay their power down, because there's nothing more damaging to a human relationship than a power imbalance. I think one thing you can do that we've talked about is to be humble and to focus on listening. So specifically, what does that mean? Try creating big decision meetings. By that, I mean identifying who's making the decisions, when are they making them, and not grabbing all the decisions for yourself. 
I think another thing you can do is build a real relationship. So really think very clearly about how you're managing your one-on-ones with those people and make them into conversations where they own the agenda, not where you own the agenda. Thirdly, you want to just call out the elephant in the room. As Jason said, you, you want to just say that, you know, this is an awkward situation and then listen, how do they feel about it? Because maybe as we discussed, they're thrilled that you're the manager. <laughs> they're enormously grateful that you have taken on this task that is often sort of thankless. That's my monologue for the day. That's a mic drop. Improvising Radical Candor introduces the feedback loop. Think Groundhog Day meets The Office, a five-episode workplace comedy starring David Allen Greer. We're repeating the same day over and over. What the hell is happening? Okay, where do we keep starting over? This is your... Let's get... Let's get... Let's get... I think that's the key to this whole thing. We have to practice Radical Candor. Damn it. Thank you for the candor. Feels like you're constantly criticizing you. What? I haven't really known what you've been talking about. I'm worried I was a little vague and insincere. Let's just keep praising them. It's positive. How could that be bad? If you can say it to a dog, it's not really praise. Okay, poster child for radical candor. Show me how it's done. Okay, boomer. We may break the cycle this time. Anybody have a vacuum? Just a little ready candy. Ew. I apologize for that. Go to radicalcandor.com slash services and enter the promo code feedback at checkout. So here's someone who writes in, at the moment, I'm on a steep growth trajectory with an absentee manager. My colleagues appear to be on a more gradual trajectory and they're getting upset by my productivity. My manager is asking me to be less productive to make them feel better. I find this profoundly unfair, but I don't know how to approach it. I realize the disruption and fear that COVID-19 is causing could be influencing people's behavior. But in this case, I think it just brought our different trajectories into sharp focus. I so feel this person's pain. In fact, I so felt the person's pain. I talked to her for an hour over Zoom, because, which I would love to do for every single person who writes in, but I can't. I don't scale. I'm just one person. But this person actually worked in healthcare, and during COVID, it seemed so frustrating that she wasn't able to operate at her fullest potential because we need her. We need her to be on a steep growth trajectory if that's what she wants. Uh, And it's so, so frustrating when you have a manager who is trying to clip your wings. So we already talked about the story with Larry Page, whose wings were being clipped. I also think there's very often um, a gender thing that happens. There's the likability competence problem. I had a job once where my boss told me, he told me this on Valentine's Day, even you can't make this stuff up. He said, you know, I think you're suffering from the competence likability problem here. And I thought, you know, Eureka, he understands what's going on. There's bias. He's going to fix it. And he said, so I just want you to work on your likability, <laughs> which I felt like was not, not a good response from him. And then he suggested a couple of months later that the solution was to demote me so that people wouldn't be so jealous of me, which I felt was clipping my wings. Um, 
And I threw my bike helmet at the window and quit in my most likable move. So anyway, I felt there seems to be a theme in these stories. (laughs) I I just want to pause and acknowledge that it's really not helpful advice for people because not everybody can just quit and get another job. It's a function of privilege that I have been able to do that so often. What I talked about with her, and I'd be curious to get your all's input on this advice because it's it's hard to know what the right thing to do in that situation is. But I, I suggested, first of all, that when she was doing projects that she go out of her way to make other people look good. And it seems like a waste of time to have to do that. But sometimes if you want to do great work and you don't want people to be envious of you, envy is a very deep human response to people who are doing great work. And so you want to, to the maximum extent possible, go out of your way to give credit. You don't want to give it away if it's not justified, but you want to go out of your way to show how other people helped you achieve this thing. What do you think, Amy and Jason? Good advice or am I telling her to tiptoe through the tulips? I think that I have definitely had people on who report to me who fit this description where other people were annoyed or envious at the seeming freedom that they had to get these amazing things done. But the secret was that they were just working way harder (laughs) like way more and way harder than than other people. What was going through my mind was something somewhat similar, which is they often were not accomplishing those things alone. Like it seemed like they were because they would often be working late into the night and people would come in in the morning and magically this thing would be done that wasn't done the day before. But they were building on what other people had done already, right? They were taking, you know, especially in the world of product creation, it was often the case that someone had come before them and laid a bunch of groundwork that made it possible for them to build on top of it. Yeah, And so this idea uh, of giving credit to the people who like helped you achieve it, I think is a really good one. The other thing that was on my mind was often in, in a knowledge working type of situation, often what you know and what you've learned is really valuable to other people. So the other thing that I encouraged them to do was like to take some of their time to help other people learn what they were doing. So not just give credit, but like take the time to actually communicate what was done and what was learned along the way. So that we had a bit of like the rising tide lifts all boats sort of situation where people felt like, oh, yes, this person is being very productive, but I also feel like I'm getting benefit from that, not just in recognition, but in skill job growth myself. Like I'm understanding how to do some of the things that they're doing. Yeah, I think that's really, really important. Coaching somebody who had someone on their team who this guy referred to as the wonder kid and the wonder kid did all kinds of great work was on a very steep growth trajectory, but often relied on a bunch of other people on the team who maybe weren't on such a steep growth trajectory to kind of clean up the mess that, that he made. Yep. And he didn't give enough credit for there was because there was slow and steady work that had to happen on the team. There were he would introduce a lot of bugs into the software program because he was, mm-hmm. you know, moving fast and breaking things. And there were a lot of people coming behind him cleaning up. And he would have gotten the Wonder Kid would have gotten further faster if he had given more credit to the people who were fixing some of the things that he was breaking. Uh, because they felt like he was getting all of the credit for it. This was in an environment that didn't really value rock stars. He he was dependent on the work of a bunch of people who were in rock star mode, but not giving them enough credit. I think in this case, what was going on, and this is probably happening in a bunch of places, is this 
person who was sort of in superstar mode was single and didn't have children. And so she didn't have nearly the levels of distraction that her colleagues had. So she was able to put in more hours than they could put in, and it made them feel bad. So this is not, she she was not like Wonder Kid in this other example I, I gave you. In this case, she was really putting in twice as many hours as her colleagues were. If the distinction right now between parents that are having to navigate childcare and schooling versus whether people are single or married, but without children and without some of those other home responsibilities or other care responsibilities. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's not only, obviously, children. There's other, we have elderly parents. So we all are are experiencing being at home differently. And so I think part of what we can do for one another as team members is to acknowledge that. Uh, I also think that even in a non-quarantine situation, there are people who like to work more hours than others. And I am a person who doesn't like to work too many hours. I need a lot of sleep. I need a certain amount of free time. And I remember I was working with this team at Apple, and they 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 worked like 80 or 90 hours a week. And I was really trying to encourage them to work less. And finally, somebody said to me, they work that much because they like it. And you are imposing your work-life balance views on them. This was real news to me because I assume nobody really wants to work that way. So I think one of the things that I have found helpful working with teams where some people really feel like they do their most productive work if they work 30 hours a week or 40 hours a week, and other people feel like they do their most productive work if they work 60 hours a week, to give people the freedom to work the way they want to work and not to tell people you can only work this much or you have to work that much, Uh, but to give people different people have different ways of approaching their work. So I think one of the other things I suggested to this woman is to say, look, I be very explicit. I am not expecting you. I know you all have different demands on your time. I am not expecting you to put in the hours that I'm putting in. I'm doing this because I choose to do it, because I want to do it. So I think just owning the way that different people like to work can be really important. Does that make sense? Jason, you and Amy both look a little skeptical about... I'm not skeptical. I I think hearing what you're describing, it occurs to me that we are exposing one of the fundamental problems of bureaucracy, which is that difference is very hard to celebrate in bureaucracy. In fact, sameness is the, is absolutely necessary yeah. to, to like value sameness over difference. And so even the idea of rock star mode and superstar mode, it's hard for many bureaucracies to account for that and, and to like properly reward people for behaving in those different ways, especially in this moment where our limits uh, are, are being tested in, in entirely new ways where we don't necessarily have mechanisms to deal with them. So like the lack of childcare, one of them, the like dealing with people who maybe in your household who are, are sick or elderly or whatever, like all of those sort of responsibilities sort of being crushed on top of the other responsibilities of, you know, living <laughs> in the world. And then you also have like the changing job landscape on top of that, right? Like 
many healthcare organizations are furloughing people. When you combine all these things together, I understand where the the sort of like jealousy or envy comes from because you know my guess is if I had to if I had to make a broad generalization is that the majority of people in healthcare are there because they want to help, they want to make a difference. Yeah, and they probably feel bad already that they're like crushed by their out of work responsibilities or coming to work exhausted, not doing the best that they, they would normally be able to do. And then you have this person, you know, the flower who dares to grow above the others and like, yeah. and do all this extra work because they can, because they're not limited in the same way. It, to your point, I think it hits something very deep inside of us. And then you throw the extra sort of flavor of an absentee manager, meaning someone who's not actively trying to sort of encourage and celebrate like the contributions that people are making. And you've got this like stew again, this, our, our toxic stew is back where you could see that like very quickly sort of spiraling out of control because when you're like, Oh, I might be furloughed. And if I'm being compared to the person who can work an extra 25 hours a week because they don't have kids, like, you know, that presents a very real risk to me. So it's not just envy about their ability. It's actually fear about what that might mean for your job. So the idea of thinking about collective success, sort of collaboration over, over, over individual contribution seems like the right direction, which is like, how can we, how can we make this more collaborative? Because ultimately like they all have the same goal, right? Like they're all there to put food on the table, but also to like help their patients get better. Um, yeah. And so focusing on those places of collaboration, the, the interconnections, the sameness, as opposed to the difference seems like a really interesting path forward for someone who finds themselves in, in, in this situation. I've also been one of these people from time to time who has had the luxury of working an extra 20 or 30 hours a week and like making shit happen. And I will say that you can start to believe your own hype Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's very easy to get in the headspace of like, I am doing this. This is look at how much better I am than everybody else. It's sort of like the social media comparison, right? Where I'm like, I'm seeing people not at their best and comparing them to me at my most productive. And I'm like, look at how great I am. I'm not comparing them to the times where I'm like dragging ass as I get to work (laughs) and I'm not able to get anything done. And that's the situation. I'm not like comparing apples to apples. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think taking that moment to say, is there a way for me to elevate our collective success in this moment as opposed to focusing on my individual success? Because if that absentee manager is not nurturing me, then it also means they're not nurturing other people in, yeah. in this situation. Yeah. I, I hope this was a helpful conversation to people. I want to summarize some sort of tactical uh, checklist things. First of all, giving credit to others, like building an alliance with your peers by giving credit to the work of others, and also reminding yourself and them of your shared mission. You're all doing this work together to help your patients in, in the case of this person or whatever you, whatever is your, your goal. Um, so, so one, giving credit to others and, and reminding everyone of the shared mission. The second bit of advice is own how you work. Some people like to work more. Other people like to work less. There are some people who can get incredible amounts of work done in just a few hours. I am not one of those people. I need more hours. But if I work too many hours, I become unproductive. So I think if you're the person who's able to put in more hours to say, look, I can do this because of my situation. I like doing this. I'm not saying you all need to work the way that I work. I think just that conversation can be very helpful. 
And then the third bit of advice I gave to her was find a mentor. Like your boss is not delivering for you everything you need, but there's probably someone else in your organization who maybe could use some of your extra cycles. Find that person, find that person and see A, how they can help you, but also B, how you can help them. Yeah, I think the last one's really, really important. Like often I will have conversations with people who are frustrated, you know, with their with their managers, but they're sort of stuck in that mindset that like my manager has to solve all these problems for me. And over the course of my career, I've had one, exactly one manager who I really felt like delivered on the all of the things that we're talking about. And yeah. all of the other times in my career, I was reliant on other people in the organization to act as mentors in various capacities. Like most of my growth came from people who were not my manager. So I think that that's especially great advice. And those kinds of relationships can actually make it easier to quit if you find that you have to at some point throw your, you know, your bike helmet against the window and walk out. (laughs) Yes. And on that note, I think we've got a title for this uh, bike helmets and other uh, organizational strategies. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. We'll see you soon.